Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. So, uh, the month of March, we are doing a new series, a new Bible teaching series. And this whole month, we're going to be talking about Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. And we're calling this series Crossroads the journey to the cross and the empty tomb. And so um, today I'm going to start in that series and we're going to get right into it. And, and if you're, you're new here, you're going to get an opportunity to kind of follow along. We do put the scripture references on the screen, on the screens. I, I'm looking at a screen in the back, so whatever you guys see, I get to see as well. So um, we'll put the scripture references on the screen, but if you're the kind of person that wants to follow along on your own and you have a digital Bible or a paper Bible, I want to encourage you. I'll tell you all the references, where to go and all of that. But we're starting this new series and for the next five weeks, we're going to look at the journey that Jesus took for us to the cross and the empty tomb. There he died in our place and absorbed our sin and death. There he paid the penalty for our sins, and reconciled us to our true Father. Amen? You can say amen anytime if you want to. After dying for us, He rose from the dead on the third day and is forever alive as both true God and true man. He is awaiting His return to the earth to take full possession of His people and all of creation. He will come again to judge the living and those who have already died. He will deal with sin and death and evil once and for all at that time. That's what we believe. That's a basic confession of what you might call the simple gospel. And this series is going to be a time where we take a, a look at different aspects of his journey to the cross and the empty tomb and what that means for each of us in our lives. So the first thing I want to do today is just take some time and look at what God did for us in Jesus. And my key text is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. And I want you to do something that we don't always do together here, but I want you to do something with me this morning, and that is read the Bible out loud with me. Y'all willing to do that? So draw a good breath, right? And let's read the Scripture publicly together. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned. You still reading with me? Sorry, let's stop there. Let's go back to verse 25. Here we go. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Can you say amen at the reading of God's Word? Let me give you a little bit of background before we get into breaking down this text and the different elements of it. I want to give you a little bit of background to this letter. First Peter was written by the Apostle Peter. You know, Peter, James, John, all the 12 guys. Well, this is written by Peter. And Peter died in the early 60 A.D. era, and he was crucified upside down under the emperor Nero. He died as a martyr. He wrote this letter to the scattered believers, many of whom were Jewish believers, who were suffering under Nero's persecution. 
At that time, Nero, the emperor of Rome, was crucifying Christians, but he wasn't just crucifying them. He was lighting their bodies on fire while they were crucified. And he lined these parade areas where he would have in his gardens big celebrations. He lined them with Christians who were crucified and burning, and they were his lights. That's how crazy he was. So Christians were dying, and Peter wanted to encourage them. And here's the ironic thing about the letter. He doesn't tell them in the letter, listen, I'm going to give you five principles for how to avoid suffering. Rather, he tells them in the letter, you're going to suffer. You're either going to suffer because you don't live in a Christ-like way, and you live in this fallen world, and you're just you know, doing evil, and that evil is leading to suffering, or you're going to suffer because you do righteous, you do good things, you follow Christ, and this world is against Christ, and because of that, you're going to come under this suffering. So he's writing them to encourage them, and he's teaching them and giving them instructions about how they can suffer, suffer? suffer redemptively. What does that mean? In a way that ultimately leads to good, that can be turned around, and something wondrous and beautiful can be brought out of it. He shows us that the sufferings of Jesus are the ultimate pattern that we are to follow, that as Jesus suffered, we suffer. And here he reminds them all of what Jesus has done for them by his death on the cross. So I want to look now at what he said in this text. And he starts out this text by saying this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Let's break that down. Jesus bore our sins in his body. The word bore here, the Greek word, means to take up or carry our sins. This is an ironic. He carried a cross. He took it up and carried a cross. And he literally carried and took up our very sins and then absorbed them into his own body. His body became the means to absorb all the sins of humanity forever. And if you can get this picture, just imagine the Son of God stretching his hands out upon the cross and as his arms are stretched out, all human evil through all time from Adam until the last person that will ever be born. All of it was brought in a concentrated way and laid upon Jesus and upon His body. And in Him, all the sins of the world were laid and absorbed. He took them all in and He bore them all in His own body. And then it says, on the tree. Have you ever thought that that's funny language? He doesn't say on the cross. He says on the tree. This phrase on the tree or the cross being called the tree is actually used multiple times in the New Testament. Acts 5.30, Acts 10.39, Acts 13.29 and 30, and Galatians 3.13, and then here in 1 Peter 2. And, all, and here's the beautiful thing. Three different authors. Luke wrote Acts. Peter wrote Peter, 1 Peter. And Galatians was written by Paul. So three of the apostles and followers of Jesus all called the cross a tree. What's the significance to calling the cross the tree? In, in this case, tree equals cross, right? Well, it starts all the way back in the beginning. 
It starts all the way back in the second chapter of Genesis. Have you ever noticed that our problem started at a tree? And have you ever noticed that our problem got solved at a tree? Isn't that beautiful? So when we look in the scripture, we see in Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? And then we see that's at the very beginning. So in the very beginning, God planted all these trees. And right in the center of the garden, it seems to be, the scripture indicates, these two trees were next to each other. There was the tree of life and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice it's not called the tree of knowledge. Some people wrongly assume that God wanted to keep his people from having knowledge. It's not called the tree of knowledge. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or the knowledge of right and wrong. Think about that. Okay, we're going to come back to that in a minute. So he plants these trees in the garden. And then we see at the very end of time, so we're doing a little bit of a Bible survey. So if I go here in my Bible, this is, I'm going to go all the way back. This is Genesis 2. This is, look how thin that is. This is the very beginning of the, of the Bible. Now if I go all the way back to the last book of the Bible, in multiple places, I'm going to read from the second chapter, but you can go all the way to the 22nd chapter, which is what I will end with today. So that's the beginning of the Bible. And then all the way back here in Revelation 22, here's Revelation 22. So at the beginning, in the beginning and the end of Scripture, we see a tree. And there's one tree in particular that the Scripture draws our attention to. Revelation 2.7 says this, Let anyone who has ears to hear... Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Anybody here want to eat from the tree of life? Right? And I'm going to show you in a minute that if you're a follower of Jesus, you've already begun to eat. Okay, so what we see in the Bible is at the beginning, there's a tree of life. And at the end, there's a tree of life. But in the beginning, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and at the end, it's nowhere to be seen. So God is going to make sure that that tree has served its purpose and we're done with it, right? And so let's talk about that. What is the tree of life? Well, for us, symbolically in the new covenant, the tree of life would be wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Jesus is life. It says of him, he is life. Right, He is the one we partake of, and when we eat and drink of Him, He's called the bread of life, He's called the fountain of living water, He's, he's everything we've ever looked for, He's our food, He's our drink, He's the first, He's the last, the beginning, the end, He's the door, He's the way, He's all of these different metaphors that point us to God. He's everything we've ever looked for, and He is the tree of life, represents eternal life. And by the way, the Bible doesn't teach that you get eternal life when you die. The Bible teaches that you got eternal life when you were born again. When you experienced the second birth, eternal life came into you, 
And at that moment, you begin to live eternally. And though your body will pass away, your spirit will be present with the Lord, and one day you'll receive a glorified body as well. So you don't get eternal life when you die, because eternal life is not just ongoing life. Eternal life is a quality of life. It's the life of God. It's the Zoe life of God's nature and character. Now, let me, for a minute, let me take you back to the garden really quickly and explain something to you. When God made human beings, he gave us two kinds of life. He gave us bios life, Greek word bios, where we get biology, and he, or bios or bios, and he gave us zoe life or zoe life. And zoe life is the Greek word for the God kind of life. When the Bible talks about eternal life, it's zoe life. Those are two kinds of life. When Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, though they, began, or though they continued to live for a time with bios life, though even that was corrupted and they eventually died, though they began to die from that moment on, they still had life in them. They didn't instantly die. And God told them, the day that you eat the fruit of the tree, you will die. So what kind of die was he talking about? He was talking about the spiritual life of God within them. So when they partook of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they, the God kind of life that was in them, the Zoe life of God immediately died. And that's why human beings have been cut off from awareness of God. See, God is everywhere present. He's everywhere active on our planet, and yet we live as though He doesn't exist. We go to our jobs, live our lives, pursue our goals, go after our dreams, and we go about this planet continually as though there is no God, and part of the reason for that is we've been cut off from His life by our own choices, by our own will. And so when Christ came, he came to redeem and reconcile that life. And when a person is regenerated, born again, there's several words that are used in the New Testament to describe what happens to us. But when that takes place in us, the life of God is once again deposited in us. And that life is called Holy Spirit. So when Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, Holy Spirit brings your own spirit back to life. And God's life is inside of you. And you begin to live two kinds of life. And though your bios life is slowly dying, your spiritual, this is why Paul could say, though my outward man perishes, my inward man is renewed day by day. What was he talking about? The life of God within him is continually in renewal while the life of the body is passing away. Does that make sense? Y'all with me here? Okay. So it's really important then that we also understand the other tree. Because for a few minutes, I'm going to go into a pretty dark realm. I'm going to look at our sin. And what I want to say to you, those of you that begin to see how ugly it really is, what I want to say to you is hold on to the end. Because we're going to talk about what Christ has done to deal with it. Amen? Okay, so then the other tree was what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what gives us the knowledge of good and evil. What is that? Whoa, that was weird. I just, uh, my, my notes just scrolled on their own. Well, I don't know if that's good or not. <laughs> kind of distracted me. I don't know if I like that. <laughs> so the tree, I didn't touch the screen. All of a sudden they went, Brrr. I'm like, okay, somebody's messing with me. Um, so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, now, I'm going to go somewhere for a minute. I think it's really important. 
because maybe you've done this. I've had a number of people over the years, mostly skeptics or people that are uh, asking questions about Christianity or about the gospel. It almost always comes back. When they go back to the original story, it's always like, okay, first of all, there's a talking serpent, really. You know, and that's a, that's a fun one to go into. But the other one is always, if God loved human beings, why would he put a tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil side by side in the garden? Is he tempting them? What's he trying to do? I don't get that. And why did he say they couldn't eat it? And so we're going to talk a little bit about that right now. What is that tree symbolic of? What does it represent? And if you know the story of Scripture, I'll show you what it represents. It represents, you ready? It represents the law of God and the commandments of God. What? Yeah. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Look at Romans 7, 7 with me. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Can we put up that text, Romans 7, 7? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. What's Paul saying? The commandments of God, the law of God is not sinful. It's not bad. It's not evil. Some Christians who believe in grace will say the laws, you know, they almost make it like following the law is evil or following the law is bad. No. Following the law is not evil or bad. The law itself is not evil or bad. But the problem is you can't get right with God by following the commandments. So look at what it says. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, do not covet. So what's going on here? The reason God didn't want them to partake of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is because they were innocent and pure and they had no necessity of knowing about good and evil because there was no evil within them. But as soon as they sinned, that particular reality and truth, the fruit of that came out and showed them their sinfulness, their need. As soon as they partook and they disobeyed God and they had to go hide, ironically enough, among the trees of the garden, they were shown their own state. They were shown their nakedness. Why did God want the man and the woman to eat from? Why did He not want them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The tree was a test of love. This tree was for God to reveal. Uh, was for God to reveal when the man and woman were ready to know about it, and that could have been soon or never. Okay, this tree possessed the knowledge of the fall of Satan, and was not for innocent and righteous people. When they ate the tree, they declared their own autonomy. They declared their own self-sufficiency. And they said to God, we are our own gods. This was and is the original sin. Pride and self-sufficiency. It's not about a fruit tree. It's about the choice to reject God and His will for our lives and claim our own right to be our own gods. Now, let, let me just share something with you that's really ironic. Uh, some of you in this room have probably heard of Satanism or the Church of Satan, right? And in America, there was a guy named Anton LaVey who, who led the Church of Satan. And he, as he kind of, um, I guess you could say he wrote a number of books on it, but as he boiled down the essence of Satanism, Satanism, like Christianity, really only has one law with two sides, the, the law of, for us, right, the true law for us is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And Jesus said, if you do these two things well, you will fulfill all the commandments. Do you know what the main law of Satanism is? Do as you will. That is the whole of the law. So, so think about this. The irony is this. You might not even realize it, but all human beings, as long as we continue to set up our own free will and we are autonomous and we say we don't want God and we want to rule our own life and be in control of our own destiny, we actually enter into Satanism because we are saying, I want to do as I will, not as thou will. Not thy will be done, but my will be done. Whereas Jesus came and inverted it and the gospel is not my will be done, but thy will be done. That's what the cross is. The cross is bringing death to man's autonomy and self-sufficiency so that we're no longer setting ourselves up as God, but we're now coming under the one who created us and fuels us and is our life. So when human beings go about the world and go about life as though God doesn't exist and they rule and reign and they're in charge of their own destiny and they act as though God doesn't exist, and we live our life continually, I want my will. i got to look out for number one. I'm the most important. My happiness is over everything and anything. And that's the cult of our nation. That's the cult that we live in, the cult of self, the cult of be happy. Don't worry, be happy. Do whatever you want. The most important thing is that you be happy. As long as we come under that, we actually are under a satanic spirit. The very spirit that deceived Adam and Eve in the beginning. The very spirit that said, has God really said... And that's what he's always saying. Don't eat. You, did, did God say if you ate that, you, 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 what, you, you can't eat it? Why not? God knows that if you eat it, you'll become like God. Go ahead. Eat. Be your own God. Be your own person. That's the essence of what happened in that moment. And what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, is it's us partaking of the knowledge that shows us the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. And before that moment, they didn't need that. You following me? Now, what happens? Well, that very tree, that cursed tree, became a place of judgment. Now, I'm going to take you into a pretty, couple of pretty heavy-duty Scripture references, but I assure you these are in the Bible, and these are quoted by Paul and New Testament authors. So I want you to see these texts. The cursed tree became a, tree, a place of judgment. Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. Look at this. This is in the Old Testament law. The writer is Moses. He says in verse 22, If anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty and is executed, and you hang his body on a tree, you are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but are to bury him that day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Is that weird or what? See, in the ancient world, to be hung on a tree was representative of the most vile, reprehensible curse a human being could come under, both in Roman and in Hebrew culture. Dan Hayden, Dr. Dan Hayden talks about the Roman world and he says this, to be hung on a tree and to be crucified represents this. Therefore, only the most despicable were crucified. To be hung on a cross meant more than a crime worthy of death had been committed. It meant that the accused was considered to be a lowly, vile, reprehensible person in addition to being a criminal. He was not only bad, he was base. It was for this reason that crucifixion was done in very busy public settings. The Roman Quintilian in, in um, 35 to 95 AD he lived, 
he wrote this, whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. But the primary motive was to inflict the greatest amount of physical torment and public shame on persons of such reprehensible and detestable character. The Romans had more than retribution in mind. They were also expressing disgust and utter contempt. Now we know what contempt is. It's to devalue something to the point of being inhuman, right? So when we look at a person with contempt, we're basically saying, you're not human. You're less than human. You're gross. You're base. You don't deserve a worm. You're scum. You don't deserve to exist. Well, in the Jewish practice, it says this, although the Jews never practiced crucifixion as a means of capital punishment, they did have a similar custom for expressing a high degree of contempt for undesirable persons. After a criminal had been put to death by some other means, like a, the sword or stoning them to death, the dead body would be strung up on a tree as a symbol of shame and dishonor. The public, this public exposure gave the people an opportunity to express their venomous hatred for such a despicable criminal, criminal as they hurled their insults and mockery at the strung, strung up victim. Have you ever noticed one of the things that says of Jesus as he was hanging on the cross that those who passed by insulted him and cursed him. They spit on him. So Jesus was actually experiencing this very thing. The criminal was considered to be under the curse of God. The judgment that takes a person's life out of the covenant community as a perpetrator of the worst kind of sin and displays that judgment by the humiliation of hanging his body in public shows that that person is under God's curse. So think about this. That tree becomes the cursed tree that ultimately becomes our blessed tree. So I'm, are y'all hanging with me? Remember I told you we were going to pass through some darkness so we could come into the light. So what's the next part? The second point here, if you're a note taker, is that Jesus died so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what it says there in 1 Peter 2. So that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. What does that mean? It means that tree, that curse was so we could have life. But if we try in our own strength to live that life without God and we bring ourselves under the commandments, it actually curses our life. Look at Galatians 3, 10 through 13 with me. Galatians 3, 10 through 13, verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. This morning between services, we had a man out front and he was preaching out in the street and he was putting flyers all over everybody's car. He was on a bicycle and he was handing out these flyers and all, and what he was doing is he was preaching condemnation by the law. It was ironic because I just preached this message and then between services he was out. And this is what he was saying. He was reading all these Old Testament scriptures and all these scriptures were saying, if you don't follow all the commandments, you're cursed. And he was saying this, he was, he was telling people that were walking by that you're all going to hell if you don't follow all the commandments. And not only that, but it has to be the King James Bible. And so he was out there saying, you have to go with the King James Bible, and you have to follow all the commandments, and if you don't follow all the commandments, you're cursed and you're going to go to hell. Now, there's a part of what he was saying that's actually right, according to this text here. Look at Galatians 3. Now, now bring it back to this context. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it's written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. 
Now, it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law. Paul's saying the very thing addressed. No one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. So what's he saying? He's saying, listen, if you rely on keeping the commandments and being good in your own strength, you think that you're, you're going to you know, be that good rule keeper. And some of us are wired that way. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you came up in church, right? And you might have even come up in a church and that the feeling was you got to keep all the commandments and you got to do it all right. And if you don't, you're in trouble. The problem is it's impossible. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He, said. he said the law serves a great purpose. Paul says it's a tutor or a schoolmaster. It leads us to Christ. What, what was he saying? You know what the law does? See, I love this. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, um, let me see. No man really understands the sin in his own life until he's tried very hard to live without sin and to keep God's commandments. So... What it does, what the law does is it comes up in front of us, the commandments of God come up in front of us, and they say, you shall not commit adultery. And then Jesus says, you shall not look upon a woman to lust after her and have her in your own heart. Ooh. It says, you shall not covet. It says, you shall not commit murder. Well, I've never killed anybody. Jesus says, you shall not harbor hatred in your heart toward your brother. That's murder. And the more the law is lifted up in front of you and the more you see the essence and the heart of it, the more you realize you're breaking it all the time. And so you realize I'm hopeless. What do I do? There's only one thing to do if you're under the curse of the law. You flee to the shadow of a cross. You go hang on to the tree. In this case, it's okay to be a tree hugger. <laughs> Serious. Serious. I want you to think about it. The cross becomes the place where the curse that we deserve gets rolled onto Jesus and he bears it all. See, James tells us that you can keep all of the law But if you just don't do one little part of it, you're guilty of all of it. Did you know the Bible teaches that if you don't do all of the commandments and you just sin one time in any of them, that you are by default guilty of all of them? Look at it with me. James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. See, this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's telling us all, you're condemned. If you can't do it all, if you don't do every one of them, you're condemned. You're guilty of all of them. So what's the answer? Jesus. Jesus, right? You can only be justified that is made right with God by putting faith in Christ. Jesus' death on the cross in your place took the curse you deserved. 
And then it says Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus hung on a tree and took our curse so we wouldn't have to be cursed, but we could be blessed. We could be blessed with fellowship. We could be blessed with healing and reconciliation. We could be blessed with forgiveness. We could be blessed with purpose. We could be blessed with the indwelling Holy Spirit. We could be blessed with scriptures. We could be blessed with the church and fellowship. We could be blessed. We could be blessed. We could be blessed in so many ways because he took the curse on his own body on the tree. Amen. He hung on that cursed tree so that it may become our tree of life. And this is where the script gets flipped. Jesus turns the cursed tree into a tree of life. It becomes the place where we gain life everlasting. Right? What was humiliation, suffering, pain, sorrow, and death for him becomes our tree of life. Think about it. We wear crosses now to symbolize a place of victory in life. In the ancient world, it would have been unheard of for a person to wear a cross because it was such a symbol of utter contempt. Now it's our entrance into life. How many cross wearers do we have in the room? You wear crosses in your jewelry. Just go ahead, raise your hands loud and proud there. Get them up there. Okay. Okay, let me, let me tell you something. If you lived 2,000 years ago, just before the crucifixion of Jesus, around the crucifixion of Jesus, and somebody saw you walking down the street with a cross, and I don't mean an Egyptian cross, I mean a cross. You know, you had like this wooden thing, and it had representative of three spikes or something like that. They would have looked at you like you were out of your mind. They would have probably thought you're into some kind of weird occult stuff because they saw the cross as contemptible and worthy of hatred and being despised. Which takes me to the last point. Jesus was wounded so we could be healed. The end of the text says this, by his wounds you have been healed. King James and New King James says, by his stripes. Stripes represent the wounds, right? He was beaten with a whip and it causes back to have stripes all up and down it until his flesh was ripped from him, right? And by those wounds, by those stripes, we've been healed. Jesus' wounds or stripes are what bring us healing in our whole being. Sin wounds the entire human being. Okay, let's talk about this for a minute. Did you know that spiritual, emotional, mental, relational, and physical healing are made available to us through the wounds of Jesus? But we have to, we have to be honest about sin and its effects. Sin not only breaks fellowship with God and kills our spiritual being and makes us you know, dull to God, but it also leaves after effects. It causes everything in our life to become corrupted and to decay. Death is at work in every human institution and every entity because of sin. Jesus' wounds heal us within from the corrupting, decaying effects of sin. He heals our spirit from alienation with God. He heals our emotions from the damage that sin does to us. He heals our mental state, which is also a result of the fall. He heals our relational diseases and makes it possible for us to walk in reconciliation with people and have healthy relationships. He heals our identity issues and sets us free from our self-hatred or our desire to be something He hasn't designed us to be. 
He even heals our physical diseases as he did when he walked the earth. So I just want you to think about something. When we think about sin, we think about an act or a deed. But sin is more than that. Okay, so now, the fall somehow, sin somehow, and the corruption of sin has passed on to us, right? And there comes a point in our life through choices that we make don't know what age that is. It's probably different for everybody. But there comes a time in our life through choices that we make where we know the difference between good and evil and right and wrong. We know it. It's clear. And we make this, these decisions. And the scripture says, the law, Paul says, the law came, sin revived, and I died. So the principle is at some point in our life, because there's this indwelling presence of sin, we're not condemned for the indwelling presence of sin, but that indwelling presence of sin gives birth to self-will. And there comes a point in our life when we become aware because we know the difference between right and wrong, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have eaten of it and we know this is evil and this is good, this is right and this is wrong. And then we begin to choose willfully and we, be, we, be, 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 we begin to crave and want. And, and if it means others suffer to get what we want, we, we make them suffer to get what we want. And that's when we enter into the life of sin. And here's the problem. Every time then we act out in sin, it's, it's as though decay and corruption work within. It brings a measure of death to our life. It causes things to happen that stay with us and carry over in our life. And you can see it. In fact, if you've ever loved someone deeply, a child, a spouse, a friend, and you see them going down a road, and you know that road leads to darkness. And you're like pleading with them, and no, don't do it, and your heart is breaking for them because you understand something. Once they go there, stuff starts to happen to them, and those things damage their very soul and identity in humanity. And here's the beauty. By His wounds... By his stripes, by the beatings that he took upon his own body, we are healed. See, here's the power of the gospel. The gospel isn't just you're forgiven. The gospel is you're forgiven, and I'm going to restore the damage that it did to your life. It might take your whole life, but I'm into restoring people. And I can stand in front of you and say, that's me. That's me. I'm not saying I don't still have brokenness in my life, because I do. But I want to tell you, I'm not near as broken as I used to be. When I first came to Jesus, out of my broken, tore up family background, addiction and death and all kinds of stuff, when I first came to him, I didn't realize how broken I was. It took a lot of years of it coming out in my marriage. It coming out in my relationships. I needed to be healed. But I can stand here and tell you personally, Jesus heals us by his stripes, by his wounds. And, I, and the reason I want to say it to you is because some of you are sitting here today and you're like, I know he's forgiven me, but I'm a mess. And I keep messing stuff up. And I don't know if there's any hope for me or my future or my family. I don't know how I'm going to fix this stuff inside of me. And I want to tell you, you get, you get up close to Jesus and he will fix you. 
He will redeem you. He is the great physician. He gave his own body and blood that you might be healed. Which takes me to the very end. How does this all wrap up? Did you know this tree of life, this Jesus, this eternal, restoring, healing presence of Jesus, do you know it's going to ultimately, in the end, heal all the nations of the world? Now, let me just say something. When the Bible talks about nations, it doesn't, it's not talking about nation states. And the reason I say that, it's very important. We have to understand nation states, borders, always change through all of history. What it is talking about is ethnos or ethnic groups. The scripture indicates that at the end of time, as the Lord has restored creation, that every ethnic group on planet earth is going to be restored to Jesus and healed. And they're going to eat of the tree of life. Revelation 22, 1 and 2, and verse 14 and verse 19. Look at it with me. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, that's purity, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, that's Jesus, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit. This is obviously symbolic of some really powerful stuff. Producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. That's ethnos. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life. How do you wash your robe? The blood of Christ alone washes us and makes us new. That they have, may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Verse 19. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city which are written about in this book. Jesus is not only going to heal individuals, but he's going to heal every ethnic group. And I, this is what I want to say to you, Christian. You live in view of a different world. Do you understand something? See, we get so attached to this life and this world, and yet we're all aging, we're all going to die, and for some of us, it's going to be soon. And that's reality. Okay, I'm not being morbid, that's just true. Death is inevitable and real, we have to face it. But for the Christian, death isn't something that we have to be afraid of. Why? Because we understand something. We're not just living for what we can touch and taste and see and smell. We're living for something that's so much more beautiful, something beyond. And I'm not talking pie in the sky. Some people will be like, oh, you're just, now you're just putting that heaven pie in the sky stuff out there. Yes, I am, and no, I'm not. This isn't pie in the sky. This is a reality beyond this reality. This is a shadow land. That's solid. That's real. That's not wispy. It's not chubby babies with harps on clouds. It's a world more beautiful and full and uncorrupted and solid and sure with God. And He is the light and He is the presence and He's the truth and He's the everything we've ever looked for. And we're going to dwell in His presence and love one another beyond any love we've ever experienced. And we're going to partake freely of the tree of life and all of the wars and the pain and the canes and the abels and all the other hell that we've seen on this planet. Every curse of cancer, every 
every curse of a child being abducted, all the terrible things that we see politically, all the stuff in this world that distorts our hearts and makes us cynical and makes us sad and makes us angry and makes us hate our neighbor, it's all going to be removed and everything's going to be purified at a tree of life. And that tree of life is a cross and a Savior who became a curse that we could be life. And that's our reality. That's not just some dream. That is real. Ultimate reality. And that's what I'm living for. And that's what we need to live for. That's why Paul said, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things eternal. On things in the heavens. Because that's real. That's life. The cursed tree becomes our tree of life. Christ crucified for all of us in this room. He not only forgives, he heals and restores. I hope you have hope like I do. Amen.